Climate change is clearly uh, a global issue. It can't be understood other than in global terms. But we all have to think about the countries where we live, the countries which we study, and ask ourselves, how do the policies of a particular country fit in with this overall global challenge? What are the opportunities? What are the risks a particular country faces? And um, in this case, we're focusing on what, for many of us, is the most important of all the countries, India, and asking what is India's role in the whole story of climate change. When we ask that question for any part of the world, but particularly for India, it's a question of how we rise to the two defining challenges of this century. How we overcome poverty as a world and how we manage climate change. And we succeed or fail on those two challenges together. So throughout the discussion today, I think this will be absolutely central in what we all have to say and what we all have to think about. Now we're very fortunate in having an extraordinarily distinguished keynote speaker and a fine panel. And what we're going to do is to ask our keynote speaker, um, Dr. R.K. Pachari, although as everyone, all his friends call him Pachi, and uh, he's a very good friend of mine, and I'm particularly delighted that Pachi is here with us at the LSE today. Now, Pachi, um, I can't rehearse all the uh, signal events and contributions of Pachi's career because there have been so many of them. But I'll just focus on two. Pachi is head of Terry, which is the Energy and Resources Institute. It's become, under his leadership, one of the leading institutes on energy and climate change. And Pachi has been uh, the director general of that. Secondly, and what probably more of you are aware of, he is um, the chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. The IPCC, along with Al Gore, received the Nobel Peace Prize, and it was Pachi that went, uh, quite rightly, to collect it on behalf of the IPCC. Pachi has been a real leader. I had the privilege of listening to Pachi speak with uh, Ban Ki-moon and others at the United Nations on Tuesday last week. He spoke very powerfully and it made a big difference to the way in which those discussions move forward, as his contributions have made a big difference to the way these discussions have moved forward over several years. So, Pachi, we're delighted to have you with us today, and we look, very much, we look forward very much to your keynote speech for this discussion. After the discussion, we will have a few minutes from each of our panelists. I will start by asking a few questions, but the most important people to place the questions are you. So uh, uh, I hope that you will um, pre be preparing and listening. You'll be, in listening, you'll be preparing questions of the highest quality and brevity for, to put to <laughs> our panel um, and to Pachi. Pachi. We will close these proceedings at 2.30. Pachi will have to leave just a few minutes before that to, uh, to catch play. So thank you all very much for coming. It's splendid to see this big theatre full. And Pachi, we're looking forward very much to hearing you on climate change, colon, India, policies and perspectives.
Lord Nicholas Stern. Uh, is the mic working? Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, Lord Nicholas Stern, who I take the liberty of uh, addressing as Nick. Um, thank you very much for your very generous uh, introduction. May I say it's a great privilege to be here in this uh, remarkable institution. Um, my association with um, London, uh, uni London University goes back a generation. My father got a PhD from University College in London in the early 30s in the field of psychology. Uh, but I've never had the privilege of gaining any education in this institution or any institution associated with uh, the London University for that matter. Uh, so I feel deeply privileged at being here before you today. Um, I believe that um, uh, India really is an important player, has to be an important player in actions that are to be taken in the field of climate change. Um, but uh, I think our projection of what we are doing has really not been very effective. And I hope through what I'm going to say, I would be able to correct some of the misimpressions. My <laughs> fault. Um, I, I would try to correct some misimpressions. And I'm going to end uh, my talk with a very brief three-minute video, which uh, essentially covers an initiative that we have launched uh, that I believe is reflective of the kinds of uh, actions that are required to deal with climate change at the most basic grassroots level. Now, let me go back in time and uh, say a little bit about India's engagement in the whole negotiations leading up to where we are today. Uh, way back in the late 80s, and it was actually in 1988, uh, my colleagues and I at Terry felt that climate change is going to be an extremely important issue on which research is going to be vital and we really need to develop knowledge and carry it forward. As a matter of fact, in 88, I was president of the International Association for Energy Economics. And by then, I'd done a fair amount of reading on climate change and I was deeply concerned at the impacts of uh, climate change if we didn't take any action. Uh, so in my annual address at the annual conference that was held in Luxembourg that, that particular year, I spent a lot of time talking about climate change and how energy economists need to take this as an important factor in the policy analysis and actions that we suggest. Uh, and most of the members, you know, the International Association for Energy Economics at that time, was about 3,000 strong, a worldwide body with uh, representatives from uh, governments, from oil companies, from electric utilities, and so on, including ExxonMobil. Uh, and they thought I'd gone crazy. They said, why is this fellow, as president of this association, talking about climate change? But I was deeply concerned from the little that I had read at that point of time and I thought we should organize a major conference in India on climate change, which we did in January of 89. We called it uh, Global Warming and Climate Change Perspectives from Developing Countries. 
And we were fortunate to get some of the leading scientists from all over the world to come and take part in that meeting. And in a sense, that brought climate change at least partly on the radar screen of the Indian government. Mr. Rajiv Gandhi at that point of time was the Prime Minister of India and a very forward-looking person. He got quite involved in this whole issue. And a few months later, he went to Belgrade to speak at the non-aligned summit. And he came up with a proposal to set up something called uh, a Planet Protection Fund. And he said every country in the world should contribute 0.1% of its GDP to this Planet Protection Fund because we would need it to save the ecosystems of the planet and to address the problem of climate change. Of course, he said the least developed countries should be excluded, which I think was a very fair and equitable suggestion. I'm mentioning this only to uh, highlight the fact that uh, this was something that Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi placed a lot of importance on. Uh, it's tragic that uh, he didn't live to come back as Prime Minister because if he had, I think we, were, we would have had a very strong, proactive, forward-looking climate policy early on. Uh, I'm quite sure about that. And, uh, unfortunately, in later years, uh, it didn't get the kind of attention it deserved. May I say now that uh, Prime Minister Dr. Manmohan Singh is somebody who's always been deeply concerned about the unsustainability of development in India. And uh, I've had the privilege of knowing him a number of years, even when he was not uh, in the government. He was a member of parliament. And we used to talk about these issues. And he uh, is a person who leads a very simple existence. Uh, and he realizes that to uh, pursue the path of uh, consumerism, totally oblivious of what the impacts on the environment would be, would turn out to be a terrible mistake on the part of India. So I'm mentioning this fact only as a broad background and to also tell you a little bit about India's engagement in the development of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Uh, as you would remember, negotiations for that Framework Convention began in 89 and there was an international intergovernmental negotiating committee that essentially put together uh, the draft framework convention. One of the persons who was extremely active, and I would say actually took on a leadership role, was Ambassador Das Gupta, who is now a distinguished fellow at Terry. Uh, he retired from uh, diplomatic service, and at that stage, he was uh, very deeply involved in the negotiations and I remember every Saturday he would come over to our institute and we would have a detailed discussion with the limited knowledge we had, the limited access to literature on climate change. Uh, he really picked up all that knowledge and was able to carry the negotiations further. It's a little known fact that um, the whole concept of uh, uh, CDM, emissions trading, was something that was introduced by him. And this was on the basis of a paper that four of us wrote, uh, a friend in Germany, a Norwegian, Ted Hanisch, uh, and uh, Per Willinger, who is a Dutch person. The four of us 
authored a paper which we submitted to the negotiating committee. And of course, there was a lot of opposition because everybody thought that uh, uh, emissions trading in whatever form you, you practice it would essentially be an easy way out for the developed countries to meet their obligations and just dump this responsibility with money in the developing world. You know, those who raised moral objections to this approach had to be silenced. And with great difficulty, we were able to convince Ambassador Das Gupta that this actually is a win-win situation and you could build in proper safeguards whereby uh, you don't implement solutions that don't essentially help the local population. I'm, I'm giving you this background only to say that the bureaucracy in India uh, and at various stages the political leadership has been quite concerned about uh, the problem of climate change. It's also true that we are likely to be some of the we are likely to be one of the worst victims of the impacts of climate change. Uh, we have uh, a huge body of ice on the Himalayan mountains which feeds all the river systems in the northern part of the subcontinent and uh, there's now growing evidence that these glaciers are melting very rapidly and uh, once they reach a certain uh, shrinking of size obviously the flow in our river systems in the northern part of the subcontinent would be affected adversely. In January of this year, I had gone to Pakistan and uh, I, I don't mind mentioning that the Honorable President of Pakistan hosted a lunch for me and I was um, very impressed with the fact that he had done a lot of reading on the impacts of climate change on the glaciers in that region and how this might actually affect river flows. Uh, I'm also mentioning this because clearly the impacts of climate change need to be foreseen in terms of their political implications. Because unless we do that, we are likely to lead to situations that would cause a lot of tension. Um, so it's uh, probably productive and useful for the leaders of the region to get together because climate change, after all, doesn't recognize or respect political boundaries. I would like to see a much more coordinated approach among the countries of South Asia as far as climate change and our response to this problem is concerned. Now, what has happened um, recently, I think largely because of uh, the fourth assessment report of the IPCC, and I hope I'm not seen as uh, being immodest on this issue, uh, the government of India got really concerned and um, the Prime Minister in particular realized that India has to take a much more proactive position on climate change. So he set up something called uh, the, advisory, the, the Advisory Council on Climate Change, which incidentally the Prime Minister himself chairs. It consists of uh, several members of his cabinet. Uh, there are experts, NGOs on the outside, and I'm happy to say there are four of us from my institute, Terry, that are members of this advisory council. As one would expect, this council is focusing not only on mitigation measures, but also on the impacts of climate change and how we might be able to adapt to uh, these impacts. 
there are, as a result of deliberations that were carried out and a lot of effort that was put in by both government departments and ministries as well as outside experts, we have come up with eight different missions that form the core of this National Action Plan. The first of these, incidentally, is the solar energy mission. Now, as far as mitigation is concerned, essentially what this involves is a radical shift in energy policy as far as India is concerned. Um, I might also go back a little bit in time to highlight the fact that India has been concerned about energy policy for quite some time. In fact, one of the first uh, major committees that was set up was in the early 1960s that was called the Energy Survey of India Committee, uh, which was chaired by Professor Robinson. Uh, and it had experts from the outside, but quite a few from India itself. And I might say this was a high-quality report. Um, uh, Nick mentioned uh, when he was uh, requesting you to keep your answers uh, of high quality and brevity, uh, you might find that lacking in this so-called keynote address, uh, both in terms of quality and brevity. But uh, if you look at that report, it was really an extremely well-constructed report, uh, and it had a lot of quality which has relevance even today. Then in the early 70s, we set up something called uh, the um, Fuel Policy Committee, uh, which came out with its report, and that again was chaired by a very distinguished uh, economist, Professor Chakravarti. Uh, unfortunately, that's when the oil price shock came, and most of the assumptions that had driven the findings of that report uh, became outdated. So uh, not much action was taken on that. In the late 70s, there was a working group on energy policy that was set up, and this again led to the establishment of something called the Advisory Board on Energy. Now, I'm boring you with these details because energy policy has been an important part of the Government of India's actions and priorities. Unfortunately, what has happened, and I don't mind uh, sharing this view with you, uh, energy policy has been dealt with in a very fragmented manner in the Government of India. We have far too many departments dealing with different aspects of energy. There's a Ministry of Coal, Ministry of Petroleum and Natural Gas, Power separately, atop, Atomic Energy is on its own, and there's a Ministry of New and Renewable Energy, which incidentally came into existence uh, in its initial form way back in 1982. And all of us, who have some interest in the promotion of renewable sources of, of energy had very high expectations that this particular department, as it started, would really bring about a radical change in the mix of energy supply sources. Unfortunately, for a variety of bureaucratic and other reasons, um, the performance in that sector has been less than expectations, far below expectations. Um, now, when the National, uh, when, when the Advisory Council on Climate Change was set up and these eight missions were identified, all the ministries, uh, all the state governments were consulted by the Government of India, by the Prime Minister's office, and on the basis of that, we have now come up 
with uh, very cl clear plans of action uh, dealing with uh, various aspects of both mitigation as well as adaptation. Um, as far as two of the missions are concerned, that's the solar mission as well as the, the energy efficiency mission, there's been a further set of discussions and in principle approval has been provided to both these activities. Now I'm particularly happy about the uh, solar energy mission because we've set a target of 20,000 megawatts of capacity being established by 2020, which may be moved to 2022. Um, and if we are to set up 20,000 megawatts of solar-based power generation capacity within the next 10 to 12 years, I think that represents a major uh, step forward. Now, it also, this uh, solar mission also allows for initiatives by the private sector. And here again, may I inform you that my institute and the Clinton Climate Initiative have been working together on two major uh, projects, uh, each of which would be uh, 3,000 to 5,000 megawatts of capacity based on solar thermal technology. Now, these two projects are going to be extremely intensive in requirements of land, so uh, not every state in the country would be suitable for establishing them. The two states where uh, progress is being made are the states of Rajasthan, which, as you know, uh, has a large desert area, and Gujarat, which also has large area, areas of land which are quite arid. Uh, <clears throat> We are reasonably confident that if we're able to put together a financing package which is uh, attractive, uh, these projects would be viable. And the government of India, in any case, has provided for subsidies uh, to kickstart this entire sector. So the initial plants that are going to be established will be given a whole lot of concessions. The whole intention is to see that we reach a level of uh, viability in the operations of these plants and to see that technology evolves to a stage where it can compete with coal-based power. Uh, the intention is that by 2030, if we're able to make adequate progress, then solar-based uh, power generation will compete effectively with coal-based power. And that, I think, is an extremely desirable objective. And India can do it. But India may need help in doing that. And what we've come up with is that the 2020 target should be done with India's own resources. We shouldn't look for anything outside the country. But between 2020 and 2030, if we have to go up to, say, 70,000 megawatts of solar capacity, uh, financial assistance from the world would be required. This is where I think a decision on financing in Copenhagen would provide an extremely powerful signal for countries like India to really take, go the extra mile and do it with a sense of confidence that we're not going to bankrupt ourselves in the process of just wanting to be good and looking good to the rest of the world. Um, I also want to highlight the energy efficiency mission which at the moment, it is being envisaged 
as a program whereby uh, those units which are energy intensive, and this includes industrial and possibly other establishments as well, uh, would be given certain benchmarks in terms of efficient technology. And if they are performing uh, worse than those benchmarks, then they would be allowed to trade their emissions, uh, their emissions quotas, so to speak, uh, through a domestic market that's likely to develop. Now, <clears throat> this again, in my view, would be a forward step. There are some bureaucratic issues that need to be sorted out. <clears throat> but if India is to establish a carbon market which is domestic, then at some stage it could also link up with uh, the international market, which I'm sure after Copenhagen will expand in size and scope quite substantially. Um, there is already a fair amount of uh, interest in CDM projects, and industry as well as government departments are reasonably well informed about the provisions of the clean development mechanism and how through innovation and through technologies that are low in carbon intensity and low in greenhouse gas emissions, uh, financing and technological innovation can be brought into the country to the benefit of these units which uh, currently uh, are good candidates for getting this kind of support. Uh, so there is, if I may say, uh, certain uh, ground that has been established for taking mitigation actions. Uh, India is often blamed for not um, coming forward and taking on commitments. Uh, there's been a fair amount of thinking on this subject. Um, with the National Action Plan, the position of the government thus far has been that we are doing this with our own resources. Uh, we are prepared to table our national action plan to any particular international body that's required, but don't hold us responsible for monitoring, verification, measurement of the actions that we are going to take. Um, of late, the Environment Minister has also made a statement that the government of India is willing to table uh, a sort of an annual progress report on what we have achieved each year. So in some sense, there would certainly be reporting on the part of the government of India, if not necessarily verification. But then, you know, as an open and democratic society, I'm not too sure whether any policing of what India does is absolutely essential, as long as we, we are willing to report on what we, are, what we are doing. May I say that some of this is really in India's own interest. And uh, uh, Nick would tire of the example that I'm going to give you, and that's a quotation from Mahatma Gandhi when he was asked whether uh, Gandhi wouldn't want India to reach the same level of prosperity as, as Britain. His response was it took Britain half the resources of this planet to reach its level of prosperity, how many planets would India require? And I, I think that's a consideration that we have to keep in mind. I mean, I believe we are going in the wrong direction as far as the transport sector is concerned. We have an excellent uh, railway network. 
which we have not modernized adequately. We um, certainly are going in for extensive use of uh, private vehicular transportation, which is fine because, you know, uh, human aspirations for good or bad have been fueled, uh, no pun intended, by, uh, by the lure of a private automobile. But I think it's essential for a country like India to invest adequately in public transport, and we're not doing that. Uh, there are several other sectors of the economy where I think if we continue on the path that we're on, quite apart from global in implications, domestically it would have a harmful impact. We've certainly reduced forest cover. Uh, fortunately, with the initiatives that have been taken in the last 10 to 15 years, that has been arrested, and in some states there's actually an increase in forest cover. So it can be done. And it's also true that with an extremely vigilant civil society, it's now becoming very difficult for people to cut forests. I must say in the 50s and 60s, we were rather negligent of this requirement. And uh, we went ahead and cut a large number of our forests, which also affected wildlife and has been a threat to wildlife. Uh, I think the last point that I'd like to make before we screen the film is to focus on the need for innovation at the grassroots level. And I started on the theme of doing things that are really sustainable for India, that are good for India. I believe, particularly in rural areas, and I would say even for the urban poor, we have to think out of the box. We have to come up with innovations by which we ensure energy supply in a manner that reduces emissions of greenhouse gases and does it in a way that's economically viable and leads to the welfare of the people. Now, one major campaign that we have launched in my institute is something called Lighting a Billion Lives, which is based on the realization that there are 1.6 billion people in the world today who have no access to electricity. Just think of the fact that they have never seen a single light bulb in their homes and 400 million of them live in India. So with this, I'll just request that that film be screened, and I'll add a sentence at the end, and I hope, Nick, I wouldn't have exceeded the time that you've allocated. So can we see the film, please?
Well, all I'd like to say in conclusion is the fact that we really need to somehow end the confrontation between developed and developing countries. Because I think this whole area represents a huge opportunity for collaboration, for partnerships, and for innovation. Uh, in the developing world, there's a lot of infrastructure that's going to come in place. There are large numbers of people who are completely outside the modern energy system. And I think if we could work together and meet these challenges together, then I think we can really ensure sustainable livelihoods for people in other parts of the world. And at the same time, means by which we reduce our dependence on fossil fuels and thereby limit the emissions of greenhouse gases in the future. So I hope a knowledge organization like this, an institution of this outstanding caliber as LSE would work together. And I'm, since um, Lord Stern has spent a lot of time in India working in a, in a village, living over there, which frankly I myself wouldn't perhaps be able to do, uh, I think uh, with that spirit we can find various ways by which uh, we can work in partnership. Thank you very much. Pachi, thank you very much for your very thoughtful um, keynote speech. Um, I think many of you, or most of you, will have known that uh, Pachi is a very important and constructive voice in the international discussions of climate change. I think you can see now that he's also a very important and constructive voice within India and um, indeed for development more generally. So thank you very much, Pachi. Now, um, we have um, three splendid panelists. Um, I'll, introduce, um, I'll introduce them now, and then we'll ask each of them, going leftwards, uh, to um, uh, contribute a few words or for a few minutes each on uh, their own thoughts from the perspective, different perspectives that they bring. Now, um, on my immediate left is... Um, they're all friends, actually, on this platform, which is very nice, is Naina Larkidwai, who's the Group General Manager and Country Head of HSBC in India. Uh, MBA from Harvard Business School, and she's ranked by everybody who does the business of uh, ranking as one of the most influential uh, women in business, but also as one of the most influential persons in, uh, in business. Um, she received, those of you who uh, are from India or, or know something about India will recognise the importance of this. She received the Padma Shri from the Government of India for her contribution to trade and industry. So, uh, Naina, it's uh, splendid to have you here at the LSE. And if you'd like to um, give us your thoughts for a few minutes. Well, thank you, Nick. Uh, it's always wonderful to be uh, in an illustrious institution such as this and uh, with uh, an audience such as this. That last film which uh, Dr. Pachori just showed uh, never ceases to move me and uh, I trust it had the same effect on you. And I think it is a reminder that as this climate change debate and a very high decibel one indeed where India's posturing is not always looked on very kindly forgets that there is in fact a lot of activity that is happening in country 
at all levels. And that in India, we cannot ignore what we need to do at a corporate level, at a citizen level, at an institution level. And that is to preserve what is ours in terms of resources, but even more important to look to the bottom of the pyramid. And I think the Light A Billion Lives campaign that Terry started is an interesting point that last year when aid into a lot of the climate change space actually went down was probably a hallmark year for Terry in terms of the funds it raised for that Lighting A Billion Lives campaign. And I think it's interesting because it came from private pockets, it came from corporates, it came because Terry got its act together in terms of the advertising and actually putting that campaign out there. But the fact is that campaigns such as this have a tremendous niche to fill. And I say this with some conviction because HSBC uh, and therefore I get to work a bit in the microfinance space. And the success we are seeing of introducing these low-end technologies at, that cater to this end of the market through the microfinance channel are very exciting because what you do is you enable the individual to change their lives in the dramatic fashion you saw by using, by borrowing money through the microfinance institution, buying that lantern or indeed it's, often it's a solar cooker, a stove, whatever it is that they need at the moment as Dr. Pachori always reminds me, it isn't about creating carbon credits. It's, it's a need that is being fulfilled. And the individual then is able to bring a change in their lives by the only solution that presents itself, but also, incidentally, it's a technology that works uh, for the future. So you get a wonderful marrying of need and, indeed, responsible behavior in terms of a technology that works. So technology, and I don't think it's about technology transfer. I think it is about collaborating to develop technologies at the grassroots. I think there's room for that technology development to happen at the university level. There's room for it to happen at the government level as well. One of the public-private partnerships, the only one actually in the climate change space, is one which HSBC's entered in with the Ministry of Science and Technology and the Ministry of Earth Sciences in India. And what it's seeking to do is to anchor technology that our science and technology institutes, all government-funded, and what they're doing or not doing in the climate change space to, A, guide them in the climate change arena, but even more important, to bring some of the technologies they have, as we found they had for SMEs, energy efficiency-related technologies, just sitting in the labs, just bringing them to our customers. That it was as simple as that. Hundreds of foundry manufacturers in the east of India attended what was supposed to be a two-hour seminar, ended up staying for half a day, just wanting to learn about these technologies. So often it's just enabling, bringing the two together. So I think the technology aspect and the collaboration of technology would be very important, and we, we would, and we must see more of the kind of uh, solar lantern that Terry finally put forward. And the second area, which I obviously must mention, is financing. I mentioned how microfinance and technology can go together, but uh, financing at the larger project level clearly is an important aspect. 
uh, and one which uh, India can benefit from the CDM uh, uh, space, but even more important from developing what is absolutely at the starting stages. But if we get it right, an energy exchange program in country. Thank you. Thank you, Naina. Um, we'll have questions to the whole panel um, when we've had we've finished the contributions and, of course, uh, to Pachi. Now, um, the second panelist is Minoush Shafiq. Minoush is the permanent secretary, that means the top civil servant, at the Department for International Development. Even more important, she's a graduate of the London School of uh, Economics. She did her master's here um, some time ago. And, uh, <laughs> that was helpfully vague, wasn't it? <laughs> and she is, she is one of the students, which we, of course, were very proud. Um, also, um, Minouche's uh, job at the World Bank before she moved to DFID is also of great relevance because Minouche was the uh, vice president for uh, private infrastructure uh, and other things, but she was very heavily involved in promoting and funding investment uh, in this area, working with both the private sector and the public sector. And uh, DFID have um, been very strong on climate change. I think one of the earliest development ministries to see this intimate link between climate change and development. So, Manoush, um, it's a great pleasure to have you back at the LSE. Thank you, Nick. It's, um, it's a real pleasure to be here. I, I was a student of the LSE and Nick was being marked, but I was also a student of Nick, so I'm used to being on that side of the... <laughs> that side of the podium and Nick being on this side, so it's very nice to be on this side for a moment. Um, I'd like to talk about three things quickly. Uh, one is sort of the UK's position on Copenhagen and climate change and the outlines of, of what we think would be a, a good deal. Two, uh, what we're doing in India uh, to support the Indian government in its efforts to, tr to cope with climate change. And three, what we're doing more widely to support research and innovation in this area. We, um, the UK government actually issued a white paper on international development in July. And interestingly enough, the photograph on the cover of our white paper was a photograph of the first Indian woman solar engineer, um, which was very telling because it captured many of the messages that we wanted to give. And in that white paper, we laid out what we thought would be a good outcome from Copenhagen, which would be a deal that was ambitious, effective, and fair. Ambitious in that it limited climate change to an increase in global average temperatures of two degrees, and that achieved a reduction of at least 50% on 1990 levels by 2050. Effective in that it provided clarity for the private sector to promote the kind of investments that will be needed to address both mitigation and adaptation, and fair in that it dealt with the fundamental injustices of who caused it and who's suffering and provided support to developing countries both to cope with and act on climate change. The Prime Minister has actually put forward, I think, what is probably the most progressive position out there on the financing that would support such a climate change package, which is that we would mobilise $100 billion per annum by 2020 with funds starting to become available for developing countries by 2013 to fund those, the costs of adaptation. And we think that money should be additional to official development assistance. And we think 
rich countries should be meeting their commitment to 0.7% of GDP going toward aid. We know that there is some intersect and overlap between what looks like aid and what looks like adaptation. Is a flood barrier development or adaptation? But we think that that overlap should be limited to 10% of the total aid flows and that most of the money should be additional. Let me move to the work that we're doing in India, uh, a great deal of it with Dr. Pachai. Uh, we have a joint climate change unit in Delhi, which is working very closely with, with the, the government of India. And in it, we uh, have a whole lot of activities. I won't describe all of them. But an important one is an initiative we've put 12 million pounds in to, provide, to promote climate change innovation with the government of India to pilot the kind of community-based approaches that the speakers have talked about and to help communities find ways to adapt locally. We've also recently just signed a £10 million five-year partnership between the Department for International Development and Terry to support the outstanding work that Dr. Bacharya has done and in building uh, a world-class institution uh, on this agenda that looks at both climate change and development as importantly intertwined issues. Let me turn to my third area, which is the, more, the wider support we're providing to research and innovation, because as everyone said, innovation and technology are going to be central to, to solving climate change. And we're very keen to see that that innovation and technology is not something just done in the north and exported to the south. Uh, in our white paper, we also commit to establishing climate technology innovation centers in at least three developing countries so that the research and the innovation is done in the developing world. Uh, and India is obviously a very important potential place where that work could be done. We also uh, are looking at using advanced market commitments, uh, which we've had considerable success with in the pharmaceutical industry. But as some of you may know, advanced market commitments are places, are, are, are contractual arrangements where an organization like the Department for International Development says to the private sector, we guarantee either we will buy a certain amount or buy at a certain price or guarantee a certain level of profitability if you produce certain types of products and technologies. That's been quite successful. For example, quite recently, we've, uh, we've uh, produced a pneumococcal vaccine to fight a, a disease that's particularly prevalent in poor countries. And by guaranteeing that we would be there to buy the product, we were able to bring forward a great deal of private sector innovation and technology. And we think that instrument is potentially very useful in the climate change technology space. But we also know that in this area there's much research to be done and we're not just talking about bringing forward some existing technologies or almost their technologies. And that's why in our white paper we recently reaffirmed our commitment to spend £100 million over the next five years on climate change research. And again, we're very keen to have that research done in partnership with developing countries. We recently signed an agreement with the LSE, which funded, I believe it's actually the largest research grant the LSE has ever received in the area of international growth, where we've got a partnership between the LSE, Oxford, and several other institutions to provide independent and demand-driven advice to developing countries about economic growth. Our view is that the best technical advice is demanded by countries and provided by independent apolitical sources who are giving world-class expertise to poor countries who wouldn't otherwise afford it. Uh, 
We intend to do the same on climate change, and we're just in the process now of establishing an international climate change network to try and bring together some of the best institutions in the world to provide direct advice to over 60 developing countries over the years ahead so they too can access the best people in the world as they plan their own strategies for dealing with climate. So I think, I think that collectively at least gives you a sense of the way we see the issue that I think as the other speakers have said, in an interdependent world, we're going to need solutions which bridge north and south, which encourage innovation, which provide financing on a fair basis, and which uh, collectively uh, enable us to solve probably the biggest problem of our time. Thank you very much, uh, Minouche. And um, as uh, LSE is a beneficiary of um, this very important grant, I thought I ought to reassure you saying just last week, uh, even though we haven't been going very long, we had a major growth day here at the LSE with people from um, countries around the world, and I chaired a session on climate change, and we had a number of speakers, particularly from um, Ethiopia, but also from a number of the least developed countries on exactly this issue, the interrelationship between uh, climate change and development. This is uh, public accountability, that was. Um, now, the uh, third uh, member of our panel is uh, somebody that um, I interacted with um, a, a number of decades ago when we were both working on public finance uh, in India, and Urjit Patel is uh, a leading scholar on uh, public finance and uh, macroeconomics, and uh, indeed much more generally microeconomics as well, in India. Um, he, uh, though, is uh, one of those people who can stride across different kinds of careers, and Urjit is now the president for business development of Reliance Industries Limited, um, a very big uh, industrial group in India. So Urjit, you're very welcome. Nice to see you again. Thank you. Um, I'll keep my initial remarks brief, but along five dimensions, uh, uh, and bring an Indian perspective on that, which may slightly differ uh, from what others have, have said. Uh, first is mitigation, uh, second is adaptation, uh, third is finance, four is technology, and the fifth is, uh, is vision for long-term cooperative action. <clears throat> Within the dimension of mitigation, India actually has had three-pronged attack on this, which, is, uh, which I think it's useful to put down in a formal framework. Uh, one, India is one of the highest taxers of hydrocarbons. I should know that because I work in a hydrocarbon company. Uh, indeed, if you were to impart all the taxation on petroleum products to carbon content, uh, that is um, emitted, uh, my back of the envelope calculation shows that it's something of the order of $49 per ton. Uh, <clears throat> so so, so it, 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 that's indirect mitigation for you. The second dimension uh, within this uh, context is, uh, is the feed-in tariffs, which India subsidizes to a very large extent uh, for solar and indeed wind. Uh, in fact, for wind, uh, for solar, it's almost of the order of uh, 25 cents per unit. That's the subsidy, feed-in subsidy that India provides. Uh, uh, <clears throat> the, the last uh, uh, dimension within the mitigation is what our environment minister announced uh, a few days ago uh, regarding uh, emission controls. Um, uh, 
for, uh, for, 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 for fuel efficiency of automobiles and, and commercial vehicles. Uh, if you were to have a 15%, that's not the number he specified. Indeed, no number was specified. But if you had a 15% uh, reduction in emissions, then by 2020, that would amount from a business-as-usual scenario to 15 to 2% of, uh, of, uh, of emissions that would be cut. Uh, so, so, so there's some serious mitigation activity going along a, a, a fiscal front, along subsidizing alternative energy and, uh, and, and, and regulation of emissions. On, on adaptation, uh, uh, I, being an economist and a mainstream one at that, uh, feel that increasing per capita income and growth is actually the best insurance. Uh, uh, but on top of that, uh, the Indian government spends 2.6% of GDP for adaptation, uh, and this would include uh, water and other pollutant-related uh, expenditure. On finance, uh, this is where actually I feel that not only India but the developing countries uh, have felt uh, that, uh, that the right deal has not come along. Uh, uh, although since 1992 we have been talking about this business, uh, there is actually no predictable, credible, or durable mechanism for financing mitigation control in developing countries. Uh, in fact, this morning we heard that uh, given that uh, the CDM will expire in 2012, uh, even that market now has a huge question mark over it. Uh, and this is at the heart of it. Uh, this is where the issue of redistribution comes in, the burden sharing, and putting some real money on what is not a cheap activity. Uh, if, one, if India were to go along the way of CCS for only 10 years of thermal power addition, say beginning 2020 and ending in 2030, the cost would be of the order of $20 billion a year. This is in a country where 40% of the people don't have electricity, and coal for a very long time to come, not only in India but indeed elsewhere, uh, will, be the, uh, will be the fuel for, uh, for baseline electricity generation. On technology, I think it's a red herring. The, the technology per se for mitigation is not important, as is the cost and the financing of it. It really doesn't matter uh, whether some of this equipment is produced in India or whether it gets produced abroad and we import uh, as long as it's uh, as, as long as it's made viable uh, from a, uh, in terms of the price. On the vision for long-term cooperative action, although I don't speak for the government of India, indeed I don't know what uh, uh, what transpires in the negotiations. Uh, I think that there is a perception that Copenhagen uh, will be a success uh, uh, because there is now a weak, a strong consensus for a weak agreement. And, and I, think, uh, I, 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 I think that is not necessarily a bad thing uh, because it should be viewed as the first step in a process rather than an event. Uh, and if we get strong national agendas uh, that are committed to in Copenhagen, uh, we, can, we can move forward. But for the, from the perspective of India, as Dr. Pashori had uh, indeed pointed out, that there will come a time when the financial constraint for embedding alternative and expensive technology will become prohibitive and help will be required. I'll end there.
Thank you very much, Urjit, uh, and thank you to all the panelists um, for the discipline that uh, they exercise. And thank you also, Urjit. Uh, I'm sorry. Thank you also, Urjit, for making sure that um, we didn't all agree with each other, because I'm sure that there will be a number of issues which uh, will arise from what you said, but also from the other speakers. Now, um, I'm going to ask one or two uh, questions at the beginning. Um, we have about 25 minutes, um, but only 20 minutes with, or so with um, Apache. But I'd like to start by asking, and it's a question which is directed to a number of uh, members of the, of the panel, so please come in as, as you see fit. Um, many of us have uh, broken our heads over the years on uh, India's policy in the power sector and in energy. Power sector is a mess in India. Um, much of the electricity is given away um, or stolen. Um, for that reason, investment in the power sector is uh, discouraged. So even though you may not pay, uh, in Palanpur, in the village where I've been working now for um, uh, 35 years and living in it periodically in that time, Electricity came only about uh, 10 years ago. So we're not one of the... Palampur is no longer one of the uh, villages, one of the many, many villages, perhaps half the villages in India are without electricity. Palampur is no longer one of them. But because of the way in which electricity is priced and organised, the power is on at the moment um, for about two hours a day, usually in the middle of the night. Um, that leads to all kinds of problems with irrigation equipment that's uh, left on. So uh, the pumps kick in, and uh, when the electricity runs, they're uncontrolled, and you waste water and contribute to soil erosion as well. So the way in which the power sector is run in India is a huge problem to investment. And then one of my questions for the speakers is, what's the role of power sector reform in uh, the kinds of investments that we see uh, as necessary. Also, um, my understanding is that uh, the prices of hydrocarbons in many cases from public organisations are kept below um, the world price so that there is a very substantial subsidy on hydrocarbons uh, in India. Urjit, I don't know if you offset that in your, in your calculations, but perhaps you can come back on that because uh, many people see that one of the problems of the competitiveness is renewables is the way in which the subsidy mechanism works for some elements of um, hydrocarbons. So first issue I'd like to raise with the panel is how do they see these problems of broad energy pricing investment rules, how that's going to work um, in the context of trying to promote very strong renewable investment in the uh, energy sector in India. So, Pachi, can I start with you, but then we'll um, move along to whoever else wants to come in. Okay, I'll be very brief. Uh, I think the points that you've raised, Nick, are totally relevant to the entire set of discussions that we're trying to, to, to promote. Well, in the power sector, there's been a halting series of reforms. We now have state regulatory bodies which are supposed to be independent but to be quite honest they don't function independently because often they are staffed by 
government officials or in some rare cases judges who have retired and I'm afraid the government still has a lot of influence over their decisions. What's even more, uh, uh, what's a greater subject of concern is the fact that often they don't have the level of expertise that is required. Now, it's not necessary that the regulatory bodies must have all the expertise in-house, but they should at least have the ability and <clears throat> appreciate the need for bringing in expertise from the outside. That's not happening. So, you know, as long as our regulatory bodies are not strengthened and become effective, then a lot of the rational measures that are required for reform of the power sector will not be taken. One important one that I believe needs to be addressed effectively is, let's say, laying down a minimum requirement of renewable energy being supplied in the power sector. Now, the Central Electricity Regulatory Commission is going to issue some guidelines in this very shortly, but its implementation is going to be left to the State Electricity, uh, State Electricity Regulatory Commissions. So the power sector really requires change and requires change urgently. On the issue of uh, subsidies uh, on petroleum products, we have been arguing uh, and pleading that subsidies on kerosene should be uh, removed and part of it perhaps should be provided on solar lanterns. And uh, the, the, the oil companies would gain money by doing that because otherwise it's a burden for them to provide these subsidies. That hasn't happened and I don't want to mention this but about uh, eight or nine months ago when I brought this up with a senior politician his response was, don't talk to me about this till the elections are over. <laughs> so, uh, the elections are over, he's not in the same position. <laughs> he is an important minister, but not in the same position. So now I'll have to start this dialogue all over again. But we need to get rid of some of these political baggages that uh, are being inflicted on the, uh, the public in India. And they, the sooner we do it, the better. Well, I think, um, I think one of the most telling statistics is that the total cost of energy subsidies in the world today is about $400 billion, which would more than pay to solve climate change. So when people say climate change is too expensive to fix, we can't afford it, uh, eliminating energy subsidies alone is about twice as much money as you need. Um, I think that says it all. <laughs> and I think the Indian energy sector, as Nick has said, has been a drain on public resources for a very, very long time. And without addressing, and it, it is one of the easiest wins. Now, I think the politics is very clear. You know, it's India is still a predominantly poor rural economy and is a democracy. So politicians have to respond to the demands of, 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 of that large number of population. But there are other ways, as we know now, about to achieve social transfers to poor households, which are, don't involve energy subsidies. And, and India could certainly deliver those. And there isn't any one solution. Uh, I don't believe we're going to see a regime where free power uh, to the agricultural sector is going to go away. It's too big a political issue. So it's something we have to live with. But there is a whole space there that we can work in, and that is corporates that have begun to generate their own power because they can't receive power from the grid 
or exactly as we discussed earlier, hold slugs of rural India that don't get power, so the solutions that we find to provide power therein. So rather than try and break our backs on trying to change the entire political makeup of the nation, which is not going to happen, we've all tried, is that zero power price going to go away for certain segments? No. Are state electricity boards inefficient, corrupt, going to suddenly turn around to become these uh, great... Uh, uh, efficient uh, distributors of uh, power? Are they going to be privatized? Uh, none of this is going to happen in a hurry. But for the areas that we can engage in, and there are vast parts of India today that are driving growth, the private sector for one. There's one of the largest fines of gas ever in the history of uh, uh, oil and gas now found right on the shores of India. Sheer commercial interest is going to drive change. And the private sector, I believe, will drive it. It will drive it because this gas is going to have to come out of the ground. Industry is going to have to come up along the pipelines to use the gas. It's going to be efficient because industry is going to look at its per unit price. And I think that will forge the change because industry will drive government to do the right thing, at least for these parts of growth. So we, you know, I think we have to move on, stop moaning about what's wrong because it's going to stay wrong, it may improve at the edges, but tackle that huge amount of new stuff that's coming in there. Are we going to get our nuclear power policies right? Are we going to get the whole new renewables policy right? And uh, there's a huge space to play in there. And the good news is it's happening, and that's where it's happening. Thanks. <coughs> You know, the irony is that if we actually get our, uh, our state-controlled power distribution right, the demand for coal-generated power will go up. Uh, uh, um, uh, and, the, and the reason is because uh, to, to, keep the, uh, to keep the red ink under a certain control, that is, uh, that is basically a supply control. Uh, so, if, uh, so uh, but of course, that's not a reason why we should not get it right, uh, the demand for electricity. There is a suppressed demand and it should increase. What I would like to add is that <clears throat> the subsidy as a fraction of GDP in the power sector has come down substantially. It's, it's no longer, there was, a, there was a time when it was nudging at one and a half percent of GDP. It's now less than half a percent of GDP. Uh, uh, so, uh, so, so I, I, I think that the, the, uh, that issue is is less important. Also, for those who are connected to the grid in India and actually pay for their power, power is very expensive. <clears throat> so, so the so the people who the, the economic agents who whose, whose incentives uh, will get corrected uh, uh, are actually a fairly small part of the uh, of the consumption. Uh, and and uh, for, for a large part of industry, they already pay a lot for their power. And as Naina said, uh, we have over 20,000 megawatts of captive generation in India, uh, which is off-grid and, uh, 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 and is a consequence of unpredictable grid power. Uh, and that's also not very clean power because it's diesel generated. So fixing the power sector will work both ways, uh, but on balance, uh, 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 it would be a good thing. Um, I'll have the last word on the power sector, but we'll move to something else. But I, I think the range of views we've heard is actually very helpful because I think it uh, simultaneously recognises that 
the problem of reform in the power sector is, uh, is a big one, but that you can actually move forward. Um, Haryana has done quite well with um, power sector reform, and if people are going to get electricity much more reliably, uh, they seem to be willing to pay for it. Um, but I do take Urjit's point that, that one of the consequences of the inability to um, uh, price electricity properly in agriculture is um, that industry ends up paying uh, far too much. So there are a whole range of efficiency gains here uh, from um, pushing ahead uh, with reform. But what one doesn't want to do is to first um, solve all the uh, very difficult um, political and philosophical problems of the world before the rubber hits the road. So um, I think the point that uh, Nina made is very important, is to make sure that the right kind of uh, investment, which is not, as it were, crippled by these kinds of problems, um, is given, given full support. Given full support. But it's never going to be the case that, uh, for at least for some time, no, let me rephrase that, it's going to take a while before the renewables are directly competitive with uh, coal and gas. It's always going to require public policy to uh, generate carbon capture and storage. No one left the private market without that kind of intervention with a carbon price or in some other way would invest in carbon capture and storage. So their public policy is going to be absolutely crucial. So one of the challenges of policy in this area is not simply the reform of the power sector, which you'd want to do anyway, even if you've never heard of climate change, but also to try to uh, generate the incentives, either through prices or through regulations, to push ahead with the kind of technologies that are going to be crucial there. Now, um, that's uh, one of the huge problems of India in a, just a, a few minutes. Perhaps we could also talk about transport, because that's going to be uh, a growing demand uh, in India. Um, and we have to think of uh, public transport in the cities. We have to think of the whole rail network across uh, India. Many of you will know that uh, Indian National, the Indian National Railways and National Health Service are in that order the two largest employers um, in the world. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether you have to count the Chinese army as well, but the, um, the Indian National Railways is quite an extraordinary phenomenon, although a dilapidated phenomenon. Um, but if you could, uh, on the panel, give your thoughts about transport policy in India and through the railways, public transport uh, in towns, through uh, putting, uh, through electric cars and uh, a lot of um, electric uh, scooters and things around, um, the way in which uh, transport policy in India could play a role not only in accelerating development, um, but also in combating climate change. I, I think, uh, again, Pachi, you've only got a few minutes before you have to leave, so could I ask you first on that one? Well, what I would uh, suggest uh, to DFID, for instance, is uh, the need for building capacity uh, at the local level in the towns and cities because, unfortunately, uh, there's really... Um, no capability there for transport planning or for that matter even traffic management and I think uh, the two go together unless we are able to carry out proper projections of 
the growth in demand for transport as these cities grow and then invest in the right kind of infrastructure for public transport, we'll have no choice but to rely on more and more motor vehicles uh, and cars being used. So I think there's a critical need to create that capacity which unfortunately doesn't exist. As far as the railways are concerned, there's been one committee after another that's gone into restructuring of the railways, but it hasn't happened for a variety of reasons. Uh, I personally think that uh, we need a few models of success over there also. The Japanese are now funding this major corridor, the freight corridor between Delhi and Bombay. If that starts functioning well, then that could certainly act as a spur for development of other routes as well. Uh, perhaps there's a role for external agencies there as well to bring about change. Well, I mean, what can one say except that you do need a public transport system that works so that people have an alternative? Uh, aspirational buying for the, the car, the two-wheeler owner that aspires to get to a nano and then to another car will always be there. And uh, it is a demand which uh, we will have to continue to fulfill. But how often that car is used is going to be dependent on what alternative the individual has. So absolutely, you need a proper public transportation system. Uh, there is an interesting development which I would uh, urge you all to look out for if you're interested in this space, and that is there's going to be a rating system for cars that is about to be introduced, and hopefully at least the buyer who wants to be uh, aware of the energy efficiency of the vehicle he is uh, or she is buying, uh, the information is going to be available now in a more transparent way. Uh, so some of those uh, uh, better practices at least may come to play a role in the purchasing decision itself. I just um, uh, just one point uh, that maybe people have missed that uh, about a week ago uh, General Motors and one of our startup companies yes. Reva will introduce electric cars uh, in India in 2010. Right. Um, so and, and India is, is is emerging as a hub for small cars, uh, but if these two merge, uh, it it could be a. a um, uh, a turning point uh, for not only India but others. Can I just say a sentence uh, as a follow-up of that? Uh, my institute has placed an order for four of those electric oh, cars, <laughs> and I'll be driving one myself. <laughs> at, this, at this point, may I take your leave, Nick? If, uh, Absolutely. Could I ask you to thank Patchy very much for spending time? <laughs> As Pachi leaves, I'll just remark that all we need is some zero-carbon electricity to run his electric car. That's the, uh, um, I'd like to make the last round of questions on the future of the international agreement and India's role in the international agreement. We've actually been quite disciplined in looking very much through Pachi's interventions, your interventions, at India itself. But India clearly has uh, a very strong role to play in the international agreement. So could I ask you to comment on how you see um, that international agreement developing, in particular what you'd like to see from India? In oh, it is true, yeah. You're quite right. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, I was getting carried away. 
Um, if, would you mind if I extended this then for five minutes to 2.30, uh, 2.35 and took questions from the floor now? Is that, does that meet with approval? So uh, we'll have... I'll withdraw that question. <laughs> and we'll spend our last ten minutes questions on the floor. Thank you for your correction. I have a man in the street question. Several of our distinguished panels represent neoliberal institutions and we're in the midst of a world crisis in neoliberalism. What impact do they think this crisis is going to have on the response to climate change. Thank you. I'll take two more, and then uh, we'll put them to the panel. There's a lady just behind you. <laughs> what is India's exact stance for uh, Copenhagen in December? Mm -hmm. uh, gentleman down the front, please. Uh, I had a quick question about uh, his special rights. Could you... The mic, yeah. Um, Urjeet mentioned that it doesn't really matter where technology comes from, whether it's made within the country or whether it is transferred from other countries. Um, could you comment on India's position on intellectual property rights at the Copenhagen Agreement and whether that debate between developed and developing world is actually potentially a red herring? Very, very quickly, if you look at solar energy in India specifically, you'll find that none of the companies within India have any problems obtaining the licenses, etc., for the technologies required to do effective um, products within that. And I was wondering if you could connect that to India's stance at Copenhagen on intellectual property. Thank you. Thank you very much. I should say that nobody on this panel, including Pachi, speaks for um, the government of India. And uh, so all our answers have to be qualified uh, in that sense. So there'll be sort of a, a mixture of what might happen and what we might like to happen. Um, so three questions there. Um, Okay. Who'd like to pitch in? I'll leave you guys with me. Um, on the, uh, the uh, lessons from the current crisis, I mean, ironically enough, the most immediate impact has been a decline in carbon emissions because there's nothing like a recession to actually reduce economic activity and result in declining carbon emissions. That's certainly been one of the consequences in the UK. But I think in terms of the wider lessons, probably the two most important ones are that markets can fail and we are very interdependent. And both of those have big consequences for the solution to climate change. Markets can fail means we've got to be very careful how we design a carbon market because we know that we're expecting that a carbon market should provide about half the financing for mitigation and adaptation. But that market will require very effective institutions to regulate, to verify, to monitor, and there will be a whole set of regulatory issues, which will be, to be honest, a lot more obtrusive than anything we've ever had before in the international system. And uh, designing that, those infringements on sovereignty, will be quite delicate. And then on the second lesson in terms of interdependence, um, clearly there are going to be big issues for the institutional architecture for climate change. And maybe I can slip in an answer to Nick's 
question that he didn't get to slip in, but um, there is a huge debate about which are the international institutions which will run this carbon world and um, finding an institutional framework which is seen as fair by all parties but which is also effective at delivering finance to developing countries and overseeing the carbon market will be a huge issue. Uh, and clearly something that will be debated and may not be solved on, on, at, in Copenhagen. I'll just make one other point on the strong consensus for a weak agreement point that, that Urjit said. And I think just having a bit of experience in these international negotiations, you can't go in with weak objectives because <laughs> you will fail. So I think until the very last minute in Copenhagen, we have to be ambitious. And in the end, there will always be a compromise and we won't get everything we want. But... Um, You know, every time we've ever gone into an international negotiations with modest ambitions, we've gotten much less than modest. So that would be my okay. um, just point. <laughs> thank you, Anousa. Urjit, anything on uh, property rights? Um, uh, uh, let me uh, let me answer the uh, the young lady's question on on what is India's exact position. And I'm I'm quoting this from the Reuters report, the Environment Minister. He said that we do not see a problem in giving a broad indicative number on the quantity of emission reduction as a result of our domestic unilateral actions. He said that India was willing to draft national legislation on voluntary aspirational emission reduction targets. So that's, that's India's official position. And it is believed that uh, there would be commitments on emission uh, reductions through fuel efficiency standards and, and, and the rest uh, as we move forward uh, towards 2020. So... Uh, as far as I know, that's, that's India's official position for Copenhagen. Uh, on intellectual property rights, uh, um, I mean, I was, uh, I was quite pleased to note what the gentleman said, that, uh, uh, that our startup solar companies are not having problems getting the technology from abroad. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and my experience uh, uh, in, in, the, in the more formal sense has always been that case. Uh, the reason I raised the issue of technology Uh, was that some of the technology is so expensive. I had CCS in mind, which basically doubles the cost of, of uh, equipment cost for, for, for power generation. And whether uh, GE or Siemens or, or, or Alstom uh, makes the oxyfuel combustion system in India or makes it abroad uh, would not change the cost of that equipment by much. Uh, and and the real, that's why I think technology... For, 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 some key techno, for some key processes in this mitigation business uh, is, is, is about cost and not about intellectual property rights. My perception is that technology transfer and IPRs are not going to be a big issue in Copenhagen. Uh, there are far more important issues to cross uh, at Copenhagen in December, and these other issues will come up later. Okay. I just wanted to add to uh, what does uh, this uh, downturn mean for uh, the climate change agenda. And uh, I think in the long term, it's actually been positive because for the first time we've seen stimulus packages actually incorporate elements of climate change uh, and the fact that the language of climate change is actually there in some of these development stories, uh, some countries actually hanging their hopes on it being the next sort of employment generator, uh, are very interesting themes that may not have emerged if the world was still going at the rate of knots as it was earlier. In the near term, I believe it hasn't been uh, as good 
there's not as much money going around as readily. Uh, there's a fair amount of money that was beginning to go in through venture capital and asset management into this space. That has slowed down because all the capital uh, that was available has actually shrunk. But uh, I believe that uh, that's only temporary and it will begin to find its flow back in. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask for just two more questions and we must close. Gentlemen uh, here. That other person has his hand up. Thanks. I'm Alex McGilvery from Accountability. I'd like to ask the panel whether they um, are seeing the emergence of policy making at the state level in India, a bit like we saw a few years ago in the USA, and whether that could be a helpful development. Each of these states is, has the same population as Britain, so it would be reasonable for them to start making their own policies at that level. Is that a real trend? And could we, could we um, expect to encourage it in some way? Thank you. Last question. Gentleman right over there. Uh, Ms. Kidwise said that it, the good news is it's happening. But is it happening uh, fast enough or substantial enough? We've talked about the energy mess. Uh, supply, uh, demand for water will outstrip supply by 2020. The population has doubled in the last 40 years. It's scheduled or predicted to uh, increase by 50% over the next uh, 30 year, 20 years. Um, the rapid pace of urbanization, 70 cities with a million people. And the final point is the problem, the increasing problem of interstate tensions over river flows and the construction of dams, some of many of which are of questionable safety. Thank you. Uh, everything you state is correct. I mean, yes, uh, we need to address everything from power to water to population growth to rural urban migration. And hey, this hasn't changed in the last 50 years. Uh, are we going to be able to change it overnight? Absolutely not. Uh, can issues, and at a very small order, I think one of the more significant changes that is happening in the country is microfinance. Why is it important? It's putting finance back in the hands of people who have an ability, and it may surprise some to believe it, but there is an ability to take that money and work with it in social entrepreneurship. It may bring some employment back in at the village level. If money goes into agribusiness, it begins to anchor business back in rural levels. Will it ever stop rural urban migration? No. Can it at least begin to contain it? It could. So the mitigants have to work at every level. And uh, do you make life easier for someone at the village level by providing telecommunication, power, health, etc.? Absolutely. So the delivery mechanisms have to improve in order to enable a much more distributed growth. And uh, it's a very, very big uh, problem, and it's not going to be solved by the climate change debate alone. Thanks. Bridget. Uh, I think it's 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 excellent that uh, that some of these uh, uh, power procurement decisions are being made at the state level because they have three or four states have been at the vanguard of establishing re renewable energy standards like in California uh, in the U.S. on how much of uh, total statewide distributed power should come from uh, renewable energy sources. So I think it's very good. Actually, I just want to add that I think the fundamental change in power will happen at the state level because power is a state subject. Uh, so th that change is very, very important. 
And uh, you heard of at least two solar power projects which are going up in two states, Gujarat and Rajasthan, from Dr. Pachori. And those in, in require full engagement of the government and the state because without free land being, or near free land being made available, those projects are not going to happen because it needs vast tracts of land to capture the solar power. So you're beginning to see that engagement at the state level, which is very interesting. Thank you. Um, before thanking the speakers, could I just take the last word to respond to a couple of those questions, India's stance for uh, Copenhagen and policymaking at the state level. We are seeing policymaking at the state level in the power sector, as um, Nina uh, under underlined. Uh, also, um, a number of us have begun to work with uh, the state of Karnataka, and we had a, uh, a meeting in Karnataka in March um, in Bangalore where um, many of the most senior um, civil servants in the state and industrialists in uh, Karnataka got together to discuss um, climate change policies in Karnataka, and that study is going on. HSBC has its Centre of Climate Change Excellence in, um, in um, Bangalore, and uh, I think that uh, with the, uh, particularly the Indian Institute of Science, which is a very strong uh, in Bangalore, and the collaboration with the state authorities and with industrialists, I think that uh, Karnataka might be an example of a state which can uh, take the lead um, in this, uh, uh, in various policies on climate change. But of course, uh, overall policy uh, has to be made at the national level as well as the local level, and it has to be made in uh, interaction with other countries of the world because this is very clearly uh, a global subject. There's a global carbon constraint, really, and uh, many of us have described it, but we're 50 gigatons of CO2 equivalent now. We have to get down to uh, uh, no more than 20 gigatons in uh, 2050. That's the equivalent to the figure that Minouche gave of 50% reductions for the world, 1990 to 2050. So from here to uh, at 50 to uh, 20 gigatons in 2050, we have to pass through something like 35 in 2030. We have to peak before 2020 and uh, probably get down to no more than 44 gigatons in 2020 for the world as a whole. Those are real constraints. Whatever we do, we've got to add up. People fiddle around and say, I'll try this and I'll try that. Actually, they're not fiddling around. They should be trying this and trying that. And uh, really, uh, we want the private sector to as it is already doing, actually, to tear away with uh, new ideas. And at the meeting of the various presidents and prime ministers in New York on uh, Tuesday last week, there were many industrialists there describing the kind of things that they're doing. And the pace of investment, inquiry, creativity in the private sector is quite uh, extraordinary. So we have to keep those initiatives going. We have to bring down the costs in the way that Urjit was describing. But at the same time, we have to have a recognition of the basic constraints that we face globally, and it's got to add up. And uh, there will be people, we'll make sure there are, who are sitting around doing the adding up in uh, Copenhagen. Good economics, budget constraints. Yeah. Uh, and we've got a carbon budget constraints, and the challenge is to combine those constraints with all the creativity and growth that's coming from the private sector, and I think it can be done. But uh, it's not, none of us are going to pretend that Copenhagen is going to be easy. 
Um, I can't resist the opportunity to advertise the Grantham Research Institute at the London School of Economics, where, um, for example, last week we put on the web a description of the kind of ways in which growth and the carbon budget constraint could be brought together in an agreement at uh, Copenhagen. www.lse.ac.uk <laughs> slash Grantham. That's what you uh, have to look for. So we're trying our best at the LSE to take these arguments uh, forward. Uh, the creativity in India on this subject is phenomenal. You heard about Terry, you know, you heard about uh, Reliance, what they're doing. You heard from uh, Nina, what uh, HSBC are doing. These are just examples of what the private sector is doing. And you heard from Manoush on DFID that the UK government is doing its best probably could do even better uh, with more resources to uh, support uh, what India is doing. So I think India will play a big role in Copenhagen. Jairam Ramesh um, really was seen as a breath of fresh air in, uh, in the United States last week, explaining to people what India is doing, insisting that India won't be an obstacle in Copenhagen, reminding everybody that India's emissions per capita are probably about 1.7 China 6, most of Europe 10 to 12, United States 25 and upwards. India is still small in per capita terms relative to everybody else. It has a strong moral position. It could actually say, well, you know, other people can get on with this. Our emissions are so small per capita we won't. That hasn't been the position of India. India is taking great responsibility. And I think it's actually moved very strongly forward with the arrival of uh, Jairam Ramesh as environment minister. So I'm hopeful for Copenhagen. None of us pretend that it's going to be easy. None of us believes that we're going to get everything done in one shot at Copenhagen, but it could be and should be a major step in the right direction. So let me thank, again, Pachi in his absence. Let's hope he gets his plane. Let's hope he offsets the uh, air travel. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to thank uh, our three a very distinguished and uh, thoughtful panellists for their contribution. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.